Hear the words of our Lord as written by Paul to the church in Corinth. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Good morning, Dora Creek. It's good to be with you as we approach the holiday season after a great Thanksgiving and a lot of things to be grateful for. If you're visiting with us this morning, as Myra said, we want to welcome you and hope you feel comfortable in our midst. Today we're going to continue on lesson or session number eight of a ten-part series called Questioning Christianity. And today's question has to do with, did Jesus rise from the dead? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And so we first heard from Gary, did a great job, thanks Gary, of uh, reading that scripture passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I call this the creed. Why do I call it the creed? Because we get all the creeds from the church from this simple creed written to the Corinthians and also written to us by the Apostle Paul. And what's interesting about this creed is that it was penned by um, Paul shortly after he met with the apostles themselves who testified testified to the risen Savior Jesus Christ. And so he... Was passed, it was passed on verbally to him. He wrote it for the benefit of the Corinthians as well as for us. And he wrote it at a date that's between 3 to 7 A.D., after, after Jesus' death. So actually this was written uh, shortly after Jesus died, which means that there's very little margin for a buildup of myth or of legend that the early Christians actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And they testified of seeing him. Well, I remember, uh, you know, I don't know, when, as we talk about uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I don't know if the resurrection raises your doubts or does it raise your hopes. Today, I hope as we deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can handle some of your doubts in order to give you some of your hopes. So we're going to go through some of those kinds of things, but I remember when I was a kid, I was in high school and had an interest in spiritual things, and I remember going into a bookstore, and I saw this book entitled The Passover Plot. Now, that's been out a number of years. Maybe some of you have read that or are familiar with that. Um, this picture actually comes from Amazon. It's still in print. And uh, it was kind of an interesting book. And I thought, well, it's about Jesus. It's about the Bible. You know, uh, there's a prestigious author uh, who's got all kinds of degrees and, and titles. I thought, well, I'm going to read this book and see what it has to say about Jesus. And in actuality, it was about the resurrection or the fact that there really wasn't a resurrection. I don't know if, uh, if you're like me. Maybe you've got some interest in spiritual things and you go to the bookstore and, or maybe you're searching online or you go to the library and you're looking because you're spiritually interested and you're hungry and you look for books out there that have to do with Jesus or the Bible. And what you realize is that uh, things aren't always as advertised. And so even though it might be about the Bible or it might be about Jesus or an author who has great titles and credentials, it ain't always what you think it's going to be. And that's what I found in that book. 
But, you know, we're not the first ones to ask questions about that. In fact, when, once we read some of those kinds of things, it causes us to ask some questions. I call them, what about questions? What about the fact, was there really an empty tomb? What about, um, were, were the soldiers really asleep? What about the fact that um, Jesus was actually walking along the road to Emmaus? What about the fact that he was seen by the apostles and by other people? You start asking all these questions about the resurrection. So here's what I'd like to do. We're not the first ones to uh, ask these questions. And so what I'd like to do is examine some of the common arguments opposing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then we're going to go from there, and we're going to look at the creed that Gary just read to us from 1 Corinthians 15. And then I want to try to answer the question, why does it even matter? I mean, so what? Whether he did or he didn't, Jesus is a great teacher. Shouldn't we just kind of go along with what he said and just, it, it doesn't matter whether we believe that there was a bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. So let's go through that. Basically, there's five common arguments, or what I'll call theories today, opposing the resurrection. The first one is the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb theory. Now, in this, this particular theory, um, what happens is the women uh, go to prepare Jesus' body, to continue preparation of Jesus' body. And remember, they went to the garden early in the morning. The way the scripture accounts are in the Gospels, they go early in the morning. Now, um, for those of you who are not hunters, this isn't meant to uh, um, you know, put you off or anything, but I, I am a deer hunter. When I go out early in the morning for deer hunting, I've got to get out there before it gets light. And the women uh, may have thought that they needed to get out there before it was light. They may have been carrying lanterns or something out to the garden. They went out very early. And at best, the sun was just beginning to rise. And it, the way the story goes, the way this theory goes, is that they, they were disheartened, they were discouraged. They may be a bit fearful. They, did, fearful. they didn't know what they were going to expect. And so they went out to the tomb, and they went to the wrong tomb. And they saw that there was no stone there, and they went in, and the tomb was empty. And because they remembered what Jesus said, and they were so discouraged, they, they figured, Jesus must be alive. So they went back, and they ran back, and they told the, uh, Jesus' disciples that he was gone, that he was alive indeed. And so that's the wrong tomb theory. Now, you think about that one for a moment. That may have been the case. Let's say it was even the case initially. Um, we learned later that Peter and another disciple went to the tomb, right? Chances are they went a little bit later in the morning when the light was, you know, when the sun was coming up. They, things were a little more visible because you can get disoriented in the dark. And so they, uh, they went to the tomb and mean they found the wrong tomb as well. Add to that the fact that this tomb was of a prominent member of the Jewish council who had lent his tomb to Jesus. And who was that? That was Joseph of Arimathea. So people could have known or searched out the actual tomb. So it's highly unlikely that even if, even if the women went to the wrong tomb, that everyone would subsequently go to the wrong tomb. Also, the tomb was only 15 minutes outside the city of Jerusalem. It would have been easy enough to find and to locate. That brings us to the second theory, the hallucination theory. Okay, now, this is the best slide we could find about hallucinating, okay? <laughs> but here's, here's the way the hallucination theory went, is that... Not too many people follow through with this one, and you'll understand why in just a moment. But the hallucination theory says that the disciples were distraught, disheartened. Uh, they, were, they were cowering in their boots, as it were. 
And yet they started talking about how great it was to be with Jesus. All the miracles that they got to see him do. And how their hearts, as they were talking about this, their hearts were strangely warmed about who Jesus was. And that really his life and his death were just the beginning. And that Jesus lives. I mean, we sense his presence in our midst and he must be alive. Okay, think about that one for a second. Unless the first century disciples were smoking something that we're not aware of, it's highly unlikely that there were, would have been mass hallucinations. You talk to any psychologist, and usually hallucinations occur on an individual basis, and they're very subjective. Well, what we're talking here is mass hallucinations. It doesn't account for the fact that Jesus appeared to individuals, he appeared to larger groups, and he appeared to a lot of people. So if that, in fact, was the case, there were a lot of people smoking some funny stuff to be, you know, going off on a hallucination theory. Okay, that brings us to the swoon theory. And this is uh, that book I was just telling you about, the Passover plot. This is where that particular gentleman came from. And here's, here's what it, it says, that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. No, he, he looked like he was dead. He looked like, He was gone like he had passed on, but in actuality, he had passed out. And think about that one for a minute. So what happened was Jesus was placed, wrapped in grave clothes, placed in a cool tomb. And during the three days, he was able to be healed and revive himself from from being in the tomb. And then he took the stone, a two-ton stone, he rolled it away, overpowered a bunch of guards, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and then uh, what, we, what we tend to forget on this particular swoon theory is then he walked seven miles to, the, to, uh, to Emmaus outside of Jerusalem. That's a pretty remarkable feat. Now, Pastor Mark talked last week about the science and the Bible, and one of the things he said is that um, on any of these things that we're discussing about questioning Christianity, there has to be a certain measure of faith. Well, I would venture to say you've got to really believe quite a bit, have quite a bit of a measure of faith to believe that particular theory. It's, first of all, it's highly improbable. After Jesus endured the torture, the pain uh, of the trial, how he's whipped and scourged, uh, how um, he carried his cross um, to, to the site of the crucifixion, how he was crucified, that he would be able to survive and do all those things after three days of no food and water stuck in a grave. I mean, it's, it's really uh, something to think about. And then it doesn't account for the fact that there were certain precautions made to ensure that Jesus was dead. We're talking about Roman centurion soldiers. We're not talking about palace guards, and we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later. But we're talking about Roman soldiers who were very experienced in how to cause suffering, pain, and death. These guys were not amateurs. They knew what they were doing. And if you remember, the, uh, the religious teachers were so concerned to make sure that Jesus was dead, they didn't want the bodies hanging on the cross during Sabbaths, right? And so they said, we've got to make sure that we get this thing over with before the end of the day. And so they went about breaking legs, right? Until they came to Jesus. Remember that? They came to Jesus and they say, he looks like he's already dead. And why did they break legs? Do you remember that? Because when, you, when you're crucified on a cross... It's putting such uh, pressure on the diaphragm in your lungs that as people were uh, gasping their last, they would push themselves up with their legs and feet in order to catch a breath and come down. 
So to hasten that process, these Roman soldiers who knew all about causing uh, pain and death broke the legs of the thieves, but when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because they thought he was dead. And just to ensure that, they took what? They took a spear and thrust it in Jesus' side, and we're told that a mixture of blood and of water came forth from inside. You could distinguish the difference. And most medical people will tell you that is a clear indication that death has occurred. So these guys knew exactly what they were doing. And then the other thing is, it's doubtful that um, um, he would be able to do what he physically did. And then uh, when you think about Jesus rising from the tomb, having undergone all those things, would he have been the risen Messiah, the risen Savior that you would imagine? I would think he'd look pretty rugged, pretty ragged, pretty tired and exhausted for the disciples to want to worship him. They might, if they saw him in that condition, think, you know, he really didn't die. He's, he's in bad shape. We need to get him some help. That brings us to the fourth theory, the soul and body theory. And this simply holds that the Jewish uh, leaders and the Romans took Jesus' body from the tomb and hid it and put it away in safekeeping. They were concerned that his disciples would actually steal the body, if you remember the gospel accounts. And so maybe they took the body, they hid it. It was kind of a hidden shell game, hidden body game, to ensure that his disciples wouldn't come and say that, his, that he had risen. And so they, they took the body away. Well, that's, that's a good one, and maybe it's got some credibility, but when you think about that, in Acts chapter 2, we see recorded in there that Peter and John went about preaching and teaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they did that, they were healing people. And they would talk about that, and the, and the you know, religious teachers were a little upset about that, but what they really didn't like was that they were saying they, they were claiming to heal people in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen, risen Lord. They didn't know what to do, so they actually took Peter and John and put them in prison overnight. Now, that's fine, but if they really wanted to refute the claim of the disciples and the way that Christianity was growing, all they had to do was show me the body, right? If they actually had the body, all they had to do was produce the body, but they never did. Brings us to the last theory. The soldiers fell asleep theory. This is the most popular and oldest argument to refute the resurrection. Basically, the explanation is that the soldiers were on guard, they fell asleep, that the disciples came and stole the body away while the soldiers were asleep. Now, where do we get this account from? Basically, it's recorded in Matthew 28. And you remember there that they were, again, as we mentioned, concerned that the disciples might try something like this. So they actually went to Pilate, the governor of, of the region, and they said, uh, we want Roman soldiers, not palace guards, not temple guards. We want Roman soldiers. Would you authorize Roman soldiers to stand guard at, at the tomb? Because this, this imposter said that he'd rise again, and we don't know what's going to happen here. His disciples might try to actually make that happen by stealing the body. So Pilate says, okay, I will provide Roman soldiers, and I'm going to place a seal on the tomb. Very, very significant that he would place a seal on there. Okay, so what about this theory? And again, uh, it is the oldest uh, theory that we have to work off of, and it's recorded in Scripture. First of all, Matthew records this, uh, you know, this whole idea of you know, that, uh, that the soldiers fell asleep, and yet he never refutes it. 
He never refutes it in the gospel. Why didn't he refute it? Well, maybe he thought, why refute such a ridiculous claim that the soldiers fell asleep and that we stole the body? How could that be? And think about that for a moment. Here you got the disciples, a bunch of ragtag fishermen, you know, tax collectors, none of them whom had military background, nor seemed to have the backbone to stand up to a lot of authority. And they, they went through, and uh, when Jesus was in during, during the trial, they hid. They denied him. Probably when Jesus was crucified, he was, they were there, but they hid down real low. They didn't dare say anything. They didn't dare speak up, and they were probably fearful of identifying themselves as a Christ follower. And then we find that after he was died, and after he died and was buried, that they hid out together. This hardly looks like a bunch of guys who would put together a sophisticated raid to take on Roman legionnaires. And we're not talking about one or two guys standing watch. Now, if you're in the military today, you get your general orders on how to stand guard and how to uh, watch over things. And when you have the governor of that region place you on a tomb, put a seal on it, you better stand watch. Because as a Roman soldier, if you don't conduct your duty, if you don't follow your general orders, you will be punished and you may even be put to death. It's that important. And again, it's not just a few soldiers. Um, It was probably at least a platoon or a company of soldiers. A platoon uh, in today's army goes anywhere from 30 to 50 people. Okay? A company of soldiers, a legionnaire, it would be 100, you know, 100 soldiers. So we're not talking about a few frightened disciples coming in with clubs and spears taking on Roman legionnaires and taking the body out. And yet that's what was purported. Um, It's unlikely that they slept. I mentioned that. And then the other thing that's kind of interesting, if I were to conduct a raid, if you remember the gospel accounts, that when the disciple went in and he looked into the tomb, he saw the grave clothes there. Remember that? And it was like, like Jesus was in them, but then he was gone. And they were laid out perfectly. If I were going to steal a body, if I was conducting a raid... Uh, man, we're, we ain't going to be messing about with making sure grave clothes are there. We're just going to take that body and beat feet out of there. That's, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to, boom, blow the place, and we're going we're gonna to take the body and run. But yet that's also what's recorded. <clears throat> well, that's kind of um, the five uh, primary backgrounds or arguments that uh, people have talked about and refuted the resurrection with over the years. But let's take a look at the creed. And if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's the passage that Gary read for us that uh, I call the creed. And uh, we're going to, so we've talked a little bit about what are some of the arguments against. Let's look at this passage of scripture and let's see what the Bible has to say about the resurrection itself. About the early creed that the Christians, our forerunners, believed about Jesus. Chapter 3, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. For what I received, what is he talking about? Well, we talked about the fact that Paul received the verbal testimony of the apostles of these things that he's writing about. So what I received of first importance, I'm passing on to you. Who? To the Corinthian believers as well as to us here at Door Creek today. He said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he died according to the scriptures. One thing that you'll hear a lot of people talk about and some other faiths will say that Jesus never really died. It wasn't wasn't his intention to die. 
God didn't have a plan for Jesus to die. Let, let's just get this straight. The fact is, in Christian faith, Jesus purposed to die. Jesus was a man on the mission who knew exactly what he was here for, and that was to die. Why was he to die? Here's his mission. His mission was to die for your sins and to die for my sins. That's it. And only he could do it. So to, when you hear stories, well, he didn't really mean, you know, his life was cut short, you know, he, he didn't plan on this. Jesus planned on it. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But in, as you look at the scriptures in both the Old and the New Testaments, you'll see that there were predictions or what we call prophecies made centuries before Jesus' life here on earth about the fact that he was going to die. And in fact, I'd like to turn our attention to Isaiah 53. There's also other passages found in uh, the book of Job and in the Psalms, but I'd like for us to turn to Isaiah 53. I'm going to start at verse 4. Think about the crucifixion, think about what Jesus went through, and think about these words written by Isaiah so many years before. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And so you have this account back early in the, in the Old Testament. As I mentioned, there's several other uh, passages that we could read regarding the prophecy and prediction of Christ's resurrection. But that then brings us to the next statement in this uh, creed. It says that he, um, that he died, or excuse me, that he was buried. That he was buried. Now, I'm just going to keep that part very short because there is no um, uh, resistance among biblical scholars or secular scholars that Jesus was, in fact, buried. He died. It's recorded in all sources that he died and that he was buried. The big question is, did he actually rise? And that's, that's what we're trying to address today. So we see that he was buried. That brings us to the next part, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Again, Paul uses the terminology according to the scriptures. It was predicted that all this was going to take place. And I love the fact that Jesus was indeed a man on a mission. He didn't keep his disciples uh, wondering about this. In fact, if we looked at, at Matthew 20, we see that Jesus was very direct with his disciples and it caused them to be fearful. He said this in uh, Matthew 20. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, and that was the term that he used of himself, 
will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised again. Now, I feel like an infomercial by saying this, but that's not all. Because if you look at Matthew chapter 12, Jesus also gives another prediction. And he gives it to his opponents themselves. And really what was going on here was Jesus had just healed uh, a man uh, with, who was demon-possessed. And the man, it says here, was um, blind and mute from birth. And Jesus healed him. And that's okay. You know, I mean, there's some guys who can do this stuff, who look good, you know, maybe go to the local witch doctor and seems to have healed. That wasn't what disturbed the religious leaders at the time. What disturbed them is what Jesus would say about himself. And so they had heard about this, and the word was out that Jesus was performing miracles. And then in verse, uh, chapter uh, 20, verse 12, it says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. We want to see a sign. We've heard about the signs you're doing, but we want, would you do one just for us? Come on, do, you know, just, you know, just throw one out there. Just let us see what you can do. And Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Not only did Jesus predict that he was going to die and predict that he was going to rise again, he said it's going to be three days. Three days. But wait. That's not all. If you turn to chapter 2 in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus talks to his opponents again that he is going to rise again in three days. John chapter 2, verse 18. And here it was, if you remember the story, Jesus went into the temple. He didn't like what was going on there. He got a whip, and he's whipping things around. He's turning over the, the money changer's table. He says, this is my father's house. It should be a house of prayer, and you've made a den of thieves. And he's, he's really upset about that. And the religious leaders see this. And they're wondering, who are you to come into our temple and turn things over? And so this is Jesus' response. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign, again, they're asking for a miracle, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this, to tear this place apart? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Powerful words, um, words worth remembering. And if you remember, the Jewish leaders remembered those words when they wanted Jesus body to be guarded they remembered those words when jesus was hanging on the cross and people went by the cross and say jesus save yourself you who said you could build a temple in three days come down from the cross and save yourself it, these weren't idle words that people blew off and forgot they remembered them and they used them against jesus then there's the uh, appearance that he appeared to peter and then to the twelve. He appeared to Peter and then to the 12. 
Okay, let me ask you this. Was, Jesus, was Peter the first person that Jesus appeared to? Think about the Easter story. Was he? Uh, it was Mary, wasn't it? Mary of Magdalene, right? And a group of women. And as you look through the gospel accounts, you'll see there are a number of different women. Some, some are very specific as to who they were. Others are just general, that w- the women went. Okay, if you line up the gospels, you go through, you'll see it was a group of women that went to the tomb. Now, what, that's kind of interesting. So in the creed, we have that he affer- appeared first to Peter. Why didn't they say in the creed they appeared first to Mary? Well, a little thing that was going on called uh, gender discrimination back in the first century. And basically, if you were a woman, you were not a credible witness. You were not a credible um, legal witness. And so, um, you know, we have in the creed here that he appeared first to Peter. We know, and the disciples knew that he appeared first to, to Mary. But Peter was the first apostle that Jesus appeared to. And so, when you think about that, and you think about... If you were going to create a story about a risen Messiah, a risen Savior, would you start your story out by saying that Jesus was, you know, came out of the tomb and he appeared to a woman, given the first century? You probably would not. Which get, lends all the more credibility in most scholars' minds that this event actually took place. That if you were to make up the resurrection, you would not make it up saying that he appeared to Mary or to a bunch of women. You wouldn't do it. You would say, well, he appeared first to Peter or to someone else. But he would not appear to women. And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. What we tend to forget is that Jesus appeared to individuals. He appeared to small groups of people. He uh, appeared to large groups, 500 most notably. And uh, he's probably appeared to other sizes of groups in between there as well. And it wasn't just one day that he appeared. He was here on the earth for 40 days. So think about that. If you were an opponent of Jesus and the disciples and these new Christians, these irritating Christians who say that their Messiah, the Messiah, had risen from the dead, and they're preaching this, and he's still around, you could actually go see him. Think about that. Now, if I were a Jewish religious leader and I'm wearing my robes, I'm probably not going to go and invade a small group of Christians, you know? I mean, they're going to look at me strangely and all that. But 500 or 100, I might venture out and I might peek around the corner of a building and listen. Yeah, that's the same voice I've heard before before we put him on a cross. Yeah, he looks, he looks kind of the same. Or you could simply say, that guy's an imposter. That's not Jesus. I've heard him. I went face-to-face with him and argued some things or asked him some questions. I saw him do a miracle. That's not the real guy. I know that the real guy... I mean, it was, again, we're talking about Jerusalem. We're not talking about some distant city or at some distant country where myths and legend can arise. We're talking right there in Jerusalem. So that if the leaders wanted to see Jesus and hear him, they could have. Did you know that the Bible isn't the only ancient book that talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? It's not. There's biblical, of course, and secular sources. Some of the biblical sources or some of the church history sources are Polycarp and Clement. 
And uh, these guys were early church fathers in the first century who actually were taught and spent time with the apostles. And these guys, in their writings, say, these things really happened. These guys, these disciples, these apostles, actually believed that this happened. And they have stories that they spent time with Jesus. And so they wrote those in their writings. And then writers about the same time, and we think of Josephus, uh, the ancient histo- uh, Jewish historian, and Arrhenius, they quoted Clement and Polycarp, and they referred to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, whether they believed it or not, it's another thing. But they recorded with accuracy that Christians claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead. So that's, that's some of the evidence we have there. And then lastly, in the, in the um, creed, then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as of one abnormally born. It's interesting that James is included in there. Do you know who James is? I, I kind of learned some things as I was doing my homework uh, to be with you this morning. <clears throat> James was the stepbrother or half-brother of Jesus. And uh, evidently, you know, what, what, what we piece together is uh, Mary conceived Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So um, Joseph was his father, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But his mother later um, had children through his father Joseph, right? And in Scripture, we see at least three brothers of Jesus listed in Scripture. James was one of them. And then it says that Jesus also had sisters. We don't know specifically know their names, but he must have had at least two or more sisters. Now, as you look through the Gospels, if you remember reading stories in the Gospel, you'll see that Mary was kind of tagging along, his mother, and his brothers were kind of checking out what he was doing. But the, in actuality, James viewed his brother Jesus, from what we can piece together, as, you know, this is my big brother. You know, there's nothing special about him. I, I know he's doing some nice things, and he's helping people, and all the, but he's my brother. Come on. And yeah, mom never yelled at him, and he never got into trouble. And, but, you know, he's my brother. I, 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 don't, I don't know that I buy this fact of the claims he makes that he's Messiah. I, I don't know that I buy that. But I'm watching to see what he's doing. And in actuality, it wasn't until after Jesus showed himself to James after his death that James believed and, like the rest of us, embraced him as God's son the Savior. And we find out through uh, church history that James became, a, and, and through the books of Acts, that James became a very important leader in the Christian movement. In fact, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And it's said that uh, historians, I think it was Josephus or Arrhenius, say that uh, James was known to be a man of prayer and that he prayed so much that he had, it said, knees like a camel. Because he prayed so much. James died a martyr's death. He was put up on the roof of a temple and the leaders are there and they pressured him and they pushed him. He fell off the temple uh, mount and he hurt himself falling down but he wasn't killed. And while he was on the ground the crowd came around and they began to stone him. And that wasn't enough and somebody took a club, a fuller's club and they whacked him on the side of the head And James suffered a martyr's death. All for his big brother, who was not just a big brother, (laughs) but who he believed was his risen Savior. 
Then it says that he, <clears throat> he appeared to the uh, apostles. Again, remember this ragtag group of followers that Jesus assembled. Future leaders of the universal church. Discouraged, disheartened, cowardly at times. And yet, they so strongly believed that they had seen the risen Christ that they turned our world upside down at that time. They endured hardship, persecution, and most of them endured a martyr's death because of the fact that they would not deny the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then, of course, many of us know the story about Paul. Paul was a persecutor of, the, of Christ followers back then, and it, his, it was his express purpose and authority to search through different towns in the Roman Empire and to weed out Christ followers. And he would either imprison them, beat them, and or put them to death. And Paul had the reputation for doing that. And yet, you remember the story about Paul as he was on one of his missions to root out some more Christ followers that he met the living Christ on the Damascus Road. And his life was changed forever. He traded in his prestige and his reputation, his privilege as a Jewish leader for hardship, for misery, for shipwreck, for persecution, and for death. And then um, it doesn't stop with Paul, does it? I don't think it stops with Paul. Because there's a testimony of countless of many other people through the centuries. Some of whom are sitting in this very room. Can attest to the reality, to the power, the peace, and the presence of the living Christ. And it might be that their hope has grown amidst personal trials, persecution, heartache, and, um, and even a few doubts. Well, we've looked at uh, the common arguments against the resurrection, and we looked at the creed for evidences for the resurrection. So what difference does it make? Can't we just all agree that Jesus was just a good teacher? I mean, can't we just leave it at that and say, he was a great moral teacher. I mean, who's going to argue that? Then we don't have to get into this whether he really rose from the dead or not. Like I, I think I mentioned earlier, this point, this question, did Jesus rise from the dead, is really the lynch point of all Christian faith. It really is. And at, at best, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he was a misguided teacher at best. At worst, he was a liar and a deceiver. The implications of a risen physical Christ are huge, and I want to hit some of those implications. But before we do that, I want to mention to you why, why the implications are huge. And it's not just uh, me saying it, it's not just historians saying it, and it's not just the critics of Christianity who say it. Remember, we just went through the little creed there, right? That's bracketed between two very important sections. Let me read the first section that comes before the creed. It comes from verse 1 and 2. It says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, 
you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, otherwise, you have believed in vain. Then we jump down to verse 17 after the creed. And he writes this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, in, uh, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those, who, uh, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. They're gone. People that we loved and cared for, if this isn't real, they're gone. That's it. There is no hope. If only for this life, if we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. That's why it's important. Paul says it's important that we know and be assured and have a hope that Christ physically rose from the dead. Okay, let's go through four implications. Here are the implications. If Christ, if Christ rose from the dead, it proves that Jesus was in fact divine that Jesus was divine. Do you remember the impossible comments that Jesus made about himself in the Gospels? Jesus said such things like this. He said, I and my father am one. He said, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews knew exactly what he was intimating, what he was saying. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And then, you know, John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made some pretty impossible statements. And either he was misguided or he was lying. And that's what we have to take at unless we believe in the resurrection where by being raised from the dead, he is in fact divine. Number two, it proves Christ's power and authority to forgive sin. Remember that Gospel accounts, all these stories about Jesus healing people. Often in those stories, Jesus would not only heal them, but he would do something that they didn't even ask for. And he would say, your sins are forgiven. Right? Go and sin no more. He not just healed, which is what they what wanted, what people wanted and expected, but he went the extra step and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, again, maybe a witch doctor or somebody who knew some magic could come away and do some of these kinds of miracles, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's all kinds of explanations for miracles today that we find are fake, but they look real. But Jesus took the extra step and he said, your sins are forgiven. That's what really tweaked the leaders off, is that who gives you the power and authority to forgive sins? Well, he can only forgive sins if he's in fact divine. And when you think about that, power to forgive sins... Think about that verse that you and I often claim as believers in 1 John 1, 9. Remember that verse? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or to purify us from all unrighteousness. Guys, that's, that's not a reality unless he's who he said he is. Otherwise, like Paul wrote, we're still dead in our sins. Thirdly, the resurrection proves Christ's power over death. I love this verse from uh, Romans 6. Now, if we, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin. Whose sin? 
my sin, your sin. He died once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Number four, the resurrection defeated God's, God's enemy, death and Satan. I love the end of 1 Corinthians 15. That's what we've been looking at today. 1 Corinthians 15. There's a lot of hope in there. And Paul says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the implications of the resurrection. They're significant implications. It's probably why you even bothered coming to church on a wet and snowy day because you found these implications to be true in your own life. Well, all this reminds me of a story uh, of the first resurrection from a tomb. Do you remember that one? Now, I'm not talking about Jesus' resurrection. I'm talking about a resurrection that preceded that. It was the resurrection where Jesus' friend Lazarus was dead. Do you remember that story? And, Jesus, and Lazarus' family asked Jesus to come and visit them, and maybe, maybe they could help out. Maybe they could heal their brother Lazarus. And so, but Jesus said, no, I'm going to wait so that God can be glorified through this thing. And, of course, nobody understood what he said. Don't you care about your friend? Of course, Jesus cared about him. And so Jesus went, and as, he, as he's approaching the town, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, greeted him, and, and said, Lord, if you... If, if he'd just been here, he wouldn't have died. You, you could have done something and you didn't do it. And then Jesus turned to her and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me, will never die. Do you think the idea of the resurrection at that time for Martha raised her doubts? Or did it raise her hopes? I think she was doubting. She knew, and she even said to Jesus, I know that on the last day, everyone's going to be raised. But my brother's dead. He's gone. Jesus, the next thing Jesus says to her is, Martha, do you believe this? He says, I'm the resurrection. And he asks the question, Martha, do you believe this? And really, gang, that's, that's the question for all of us today. Do we believe this? And I think as we look at the scriptures and we take a careful look and examine some of the facts that I tried to do today, and with a little bit of faith. Remember Mark said for any of these things it's going to take a little bit of faith. We can be assured and have the confidence in knowing that the resurrection can give us hope even amidst our fears, our hardships, our heartache and even our doubts. I'd like to uh, end uh, the service today uh, by asking you to stand with me. Would you all stand, please? And uh, I'm going to ask you to do something. If you don't feel comfortable, if, you don't, if you're not at that place, if you don't believe it, please, you don't, you don't need to do this.
but I'm going to put on, on the screen here the creed that uh, Gary read for us earlier from 1 Corinthians 15. And um, whether you have great hope this morning or just a little bit of hope about the truth, about the significance of the resurrection, if you have any degree of hope, I wonder if you'd read this along with me. Let's read the creed together. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Lord, we would ask that you would use these words of the creed to give us hope not only for eternity, but for living life today. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and proving who you claim to be. We thank you in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.